Hello, this is Millie Long. I'm at University of North Carolina, and I'm co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And on behalf of my co-editor-in-chief, Jazz Bajaj, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Neil Singupta, who's Associate Professor of Medicine at University of Chicago, and also chair of the ACG Practice Parameters Committee. So Neil, welcome. Thanks, Millie. Happy to be here. Well, we are thrilled for the reason you are here, which is the ACG has just released its newest guidelines on common, uh, on lower GI bleeding. And, you know, this is something we as gastroenterologists deal with each and every day, particularly in the hospital setting when we're, when we're there. And so I'm sure this, this was something that needed a significant update, it sounds like. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most common reasons that gastroenterologists are consulted in the inpatient setting. And the prior iteration of the ACG guideline was published in 2016 with a literature search that was done in 2015. So since that time, there have been several updates, several recent studies. And so we felt strongly that this was a topic that needs to be updated. So providers kind of have the most recent evidence base and most recent kind of guidelines to make decisions on how to manage these patients. So important. I actually just came off our consult service myself, and this came up no less than 20 times. <laughs> let's, let's jump in. You know, one of the first questions I have for you is, you know, obviously the lower GI bleeding is quite common. And one of the scenarios that we deal with often in clinical practice is the patient who comes in and reports, you know, bright red blood per rectum and trying to figure out how to restratify that individual, like who requires inpatient evaluation and workup, who could be managed as an outpatient. Um, kind of in an expedited fashion. Does the guidelines do the guidelines at all help us with risk stratification? Yeah, so this is a topic in which there have been a few updates since the last guidelines. So traditionally in lower GI bleeding, there really were no established risk prediction tools to accurately predict patients who are at low risk for acquiring some sort of hospital-based intervention. There have been clinical prediction tools that are actually used in upper GI bleeding, like the Glasgow Blatchford score, that is used pretty commonly, and it's pretty accurate at predicting which patients are at risk for acquiring a hospital-based intervention for upper GI bleeding, but that data didn't really exist until relatively recently in lower GI bleeding. There have been a couple prediction tools that have been derived and validated. The most commonly used clinical prediction score for lower GI bleeding now is a score called the Oakland score that was derived and validated in the United Kingdom. And that score is actually pretty accurate at predicting patients who, with lower GI bleeding who may require a hospital-based intervention. So in the guideline, we have a table with the Oakland score. It's based on pre-endoscopic variables such as uh, physical exam findings, comorbidities, and a lot of it is driven by their hemoglobin levels. So that is one tool that providers have that they can use to kind of assess what is their risk of requiring an intervention. And if their risk is really low, and those patients can potentially be triaged as an outpatient. We definitely need more studies to kind of validate the role of this clinical prediction tool, but I think it's a good starting point because I agree far too often, you know, we're faced with a dilemma of what do we do with every patient with bright red blood per rectum? Does everyone need a colonoscopy? So what I would say is that in reality, patients come in with rectal bleeding. If their bleeding has subsided, if their hemoglobin is not really significantly declined from their baseline, and if they've had a recent colonoscopy um, in which you're not really worried about neoplasia or IBD or a vascular cause of bleeding, then I think you can feel reassured that those that patient may not necessarily require inpatient management and can follow up with their outpatient GI doctor. No, this is great. I, I think we triage a lot of those patients on a, on a daily basis. You know, one of the things you mentioned is, you know, obviously hemoglobin matters. And, you know, there has been uh, some newer data over the past six years, seven years since the last update 
in regard to thresholds for transfusion. Did, did you all address that in this guideline? We did. So most of the data is extrapolated from the upper GI bleeding literature. And uh, we, we basically reanalyzed the data and our, our findings and recommendations were similar to the upper GI guideline that was published a year or two ago. But essentially, we recommend restrictive transfusion for the majority of patients coming in with lower GI bleeding. Restrictive transfusion means that the threshold for transfusion is a hemoglobin of seven grams per deciliter. Now, the caveat is that exceptions should certainly be made in the setting of shock um, if someone is hemodynamically unstable, or if there's a history of acute coronary syndrome or, or cardiovascular ischemia, then the thresholds may need to be a little bit higher than that seven grams per deciliter. But I'd say for the majority of patients who are hemodynamically stable, who have anemia, then I think targeting a threshold of seven grams per deciliter for transfusion is, is reasonable and consistent with, uh, with the data. Great. Now, you know, one of the things I've run into recently on our consult service that I'm sure you have as well, is that it seems like there's a new anticoagulant every other day and that people come in on a lot of these. And so there are a lot of questions surrounding in the setting of GI bleeding, what to do with anticoagulation. And I recognize that it's case by case in many instances, but is there any overall guidance that you all can provide surrounding anticoagulant management in the setting of a lower GI bleed? Certainly. So we touch on the management of anticoagulation and the role uh, of, rever of reversal agents in lower GI bleeding in this document. I do want to make sure the listeners are aware that the ACG published an excellent guideline with, in conjunction with the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology on periprocedural antithrombotic management, as well as the management of antithrombotics in, in all-cause GI bleeding. We included a lot of the data and recommendations in our lower GI bleeding guideline because we wanted a document that providers can, can read that would tell them how to manage anticoagulation without necessarily having to refer them to a second document. I just wanted to make sure the readers are aware that that excellent guideline is, has been published, I think it was last year. So we talk um, about the management of anticoagulation. Ultimately, the management really depends on several factors. It depends on their patient's hemodynamic stability and the severity of bleeding. So if we talk about patients on vitamin K antagonists, for example, the management really depends on whether they're coming in with hemodynamic instability, they're hypotensive, what the severity of bleeding is, if their INR is significantly prolonged. Ultimately speaking, most patients really don't need reversal. I think just holding their vitamin K antagonist alone is often adequate to, um, to managing these patients. However, there are certain scenarios in which patients can have a life-threatening bleed. They're, they have hemodynamic instability despite resuscitation and their INR is significantly prolonged. In those patients, reversal is reasonable and the preferred reversal agent is PCC or prothrombin complex concentrate over FFP. For patients on direct oral anticoagulants, similarly, the vast majority of patients likely are, are fine just holding their DOAC and just resuscitating them with intravenous fluid. However, rarely you'll have a patient with life-threatening bleeding with hemodynamic instability, and those patients may need to be reversed and we provide recommendations for reversal when necessary. I think the take home is that this field is, is rapidly changing. There's not a lot of high quality data specifically in the setting of GI bleeding on the role of reversal agents. So right now, we recommend it only for the patient with life-threatening bleeding uh, who are not responding to resuscitation. Oh, that's great. No, I, I think, and very timely and important for our patients. 
You know, one of the other, the lower GI bleeding is one of the arenas where truly management intersects between interventional radiology and gastroenterology. And, you know, I'd like your thoughts. Does the, did the guideline address uh, the role that interventional radiology can play in lower GI bleeding and when those, uh, the indications are to get our colleagues involved? Absolutely. So this is one area in which there have also been a lot of updates in the since the prior iteration of this guideline in 2016. So we recommend that for the majority of patients who have hemodynamically significant lower GI bleeding, severe hematochesia, in which we're confident that this is not an upper GI source, we actually recommend doing a, a CTA or CT angiogram as the first diagnostic test. CT angiograms are now widely used and widely available at most hospital settings. They have excellent sensitivity in detecting active GI bleeding. And so there's been several studies in the U.S. as well as in Japan that have shown that CTA has a really strong role in as the first diagnostic test for patients with hemodynamically significant GI bleeding. Now, ultimately, colonoscopy is still one of the important diagnostic tools. There's not really high-quality data helping us determine when patients should get a colonoscopy or a CTA, but in our guideline, we essentially recommend a CTA as the first test for someone who has hemodynamically significant severe lower GI bleeding after resuscitation. Now, for patients who have a CTA, and if the CTA is negative, then those patients can get a colonoscopy um, at some point during their hospitalization. But if the CTA shows active extravasation of contrast, then uh, the options are calling our interventional radiology friends to then go directly to an angiography for possible embolization if, if uh, extravasation is seen at the time of angiography. And that's also been shown to be very effective managing lower GI bleeding. Another option after a positive CTA is performing a colonoscopy. And actually, that's the model of what's done in Asia. Uh, a lot of Japanese studies have shown that colonoscopy is successful and high yield after a positive CTA. In the United States, I think the traditional management is, is going to IR after a positive CTA. So either a reasonable option. So I do think that the interventional radiologists are very important in the, manage, in the therapeutic management of lower GI bleeding. I agree. Uh, immensely, of course. And, uh, you know, I, I feel for some colleagues who may not have access to IR in their hospital, and obviously that will change things. You mentioned something that I, I want to circle back with, though, which I think is very true, is, you know, hemodynamically significant lower GI bleeding in the absence of upper GI bleeding. Were, did you all touch on, is there a role for an upper endoscopy to rule out an upper GI source? And, and what are the indications for that? Yeah, that's a great question. And so this question always comes up because if a patient has you know, blood per rectum. It could be melanin, it could be dark red blood, it could be bright red blood. So sometimes it's difficult to get a sense of, you know, where exactly do we think the bleeding is coming from? So ultimately, you know, I think we really rely on the clinician to make a judgment call as to what is the really pretest probability that this is an upper GI bleed. So in the guideline, we talk a lot about diagnostic tests that can be considered. We talk about the role of NG tubes, as well as the BUN to creatinine ratio. And it turns out those tests are not really good at differentiating upper GI bleeding from lower GI bleeding, unfortunately. In the prior iteration of the guideline, the recommendation was to consider an upper endoscopy for patients who have severe hematochesia. And the reason for that is because there have been clinical trials in the past that have shown that upwards of 15% of patients with severe hematochesia 
may have a duodenal source of bleeding. So the reality is there are not a lot of high quality studies showing, you know, telling us what diagnostic tests can be done to determine whether it's an upper or lower source of bleeding. So we really rely on the clinician's history and physical examination. So we talk about this in the guideline, but we rely on things like a patient's history, for example, if they have a history of ulcer disease, if they have a history of variceal bleeding, if they have a history of heavy use of NSAIDs, if their BUN to creatinine ratio is significantly elevated, then it certainly may make sense to do an upper endoscopy within 24 hours first as the first diagnostic test in someone presenting with severe hematochesia. But there's no hard and, and fast rule, unfortunately. Certainly makes sense and, and, and correlates with what I see clinically as well. So as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask one final question, which is, you know, I know these guidelines are a labor of love. I've been involved in one of these before. It's two years really working so hard to get the evidence right and the recommendations. Do you have one pearl that you'd like to leave us with from your involvement with the guidelines or the output of the guidelines that you think our listeners would appreciate? I probably have several, but I'll try to I'll try to focus on one, Millie. I think, you know, my personal pet peeve as someone who does a lot of inpatient GI consults is that, you know, we go through this cycle of doing a lot of colonoscopies on patients who who have hematochesia or fibroid blood parectum. And the reality is, is by the time we've done a colonoscopy, oftentimes particularly in the setting of suspected diverticular bleeding. Usually the bleeding has subsided and we end up doing a colonoscopy and we don't really see anything. And there's this cycle of patients who get multiple colonoscopies over the course of a year and every single time we just see bleeding. So one thing we touch on in the guideline is that if bleeding has subsided and if they've had a recent colonoscopy, which is high quality and has excluded things like cancer or an advanced adenoma or IBD or a vascular lesion, then not doing a procedure is a perfectly reasonable option. I think observing a patient, following them, making sure their bleeding has subsided, that's a very reasonable strategy because ultimately the goal of a colonoscopy is to provide a diagnosis. But if you're confident of the diagnosis, if, you're, if your suspicion of a diverticular bleed is high and they're bleeding has subsided, then I'm not sure what the role of a colonoscopy is at that point. So we talk about that in the guideline. Now, the, the caveat is that clearly colonoscopy has a very valuable role for people in which the diagnosis is not clear, if you're worried about a vascular source of bleeding. And uh, to be honest, diverticular bleeding can be treated endoscopically. But the reality is in the United States, that is a relatively rare phenomenon in which we actually clip or cauterize or band a diverticular bleed. So we, we go over that in detail in this guideline. No, I think that's really helpful. Sometimes less is more, uh, and it certainly can uh, even improve some of our patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope our listeners not got to gotta pique their interest, let's say, so that they'll get out there and read the guidelines, which are available on the ACG website. And we look forward to hopefully working with you on future projects, Neil. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks very much, Billy. It was my pleasure.